0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, is a worthy tribute to Kurt Vonnegut and a compelling introduction for The Uninitiated. The documentary film is the first of its kind on Vonnegut, is a deep, immersive dive into the author's upbringing and his creative output. It spans his childhood and his experiences in World War II and his life, his family, his working with General Electric, all the way through to uh, to his uh, passing. It, it is uh, just a wonderful documentary film about what, one of my favorite authors and uh, one in which, if you don't know of Kurt Vonnegut, you should take the time to look into him and his writing. But in the meantime, we're uh, joined today by the director of Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, and that would be Robert Whitey. Robert, welcome to Film School Radio.
1: Thank, thanks, Mike. It's nice to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I, we know from the film the evolution of this particular project, Unstuck in Time, but and your history with Kurt Vonnegut, which is just an, an amazing relationship that you had with him, it took a couple of starts to get to this point where we have a finished project. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that, was sort of as you progressed through this time with Kurt Vonnegut, and uh, as you were, you always had the intention of making a film. Tell me a little bit about your journey, if you
1: will. When I was a mere youth of 22 years old, I had uh, finished my first film, which was a documentary on the Marx Brothers for PBS, The Marx Brothers in a Nutshell. And I did that film because I loved the Marx Brothers so much, and I I loved vonnegut so much. So I was brash enough to write to him. I got a hold of an address somewhere. I don't even remember where now. And I said, Hi, you don't know me, but uh, My Bob Whitey and I made this film on the Marx Brothers because I'm a fan of theirs. I'm also a fan of yours. I'd like to make a film about you. And um, Lo and behold, he wrote back. And uh, it just so happened that he caught my Marx Brothers film on PBS because he loves, as you and I do, old film comedy. He loved the Marx Brothers. So he had had watched it. So here I was only 22 years old, but he, he knew my work, my only work at that point. He said you know, I'm an author. My work is on the page. It's not on film. I don't know how you make a film about an author, but you're welcome to try. And here's my phone number. Give me a call. And next time you're in New York, cause I lived and still live in LA. Next time you're in New York, let's get together. Now imagine getting this letter, you know, it's like, you know, getting a letter from, if you're a big fan of, you know, Kerouac's or Solinger or something, suddenly he's writing you. Here's my phone number. Give me a call. So I did call and we did get together later that year this was in 82 now and he authorized the film and it was 1988 before i got any money to start doing any filming and that was like a kind of some seed money from american masters on pbs which allowed me to do some filming with him in 88 but then that money was gone and you know people ask me why it took me so long to make the film and the answer is actually quite boring and and pragmatic which is i never had financing So I would just finance out of my own pocket here and there, you know, and when we had time, when we had some mutual time, I would do some more filming with him. And that went, that went on, you know, on and off until shortly before his death in 2007. Now what I wasn't expecting at the beginning, because I thought it would be a very conventional sort of author documentary, the kind of thing you'd see on American masters, which I think is a great series. I've done two things for them. It would be that kind of a film. And, It really wasn't until after he died and I was struggling with how to finish it that friends suggested, friends of his, mutual friends of ours, said, well, this story about meeting your literary hero and becoming such close friends with him and how that impacted the film and the struggle to make the film all these years, that story should be folded into the documentary, into the biography, which I was reluctant to do because I really didn't want to appear on camera. I'm not, you know, Michael Moore or Morgan Spurlock or those people who do that very successfully. I I don't need to see my mug on the screen. But it 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 became sort of the only way to dig myself out of this hole I had dug my dug for myself. And, you know, I'm a believer in full disclosure. So the fact that over the course of the film, it was no longer just a film about a writer, it was a film about a friend of mine that sort of needed to be. So we, you know, we took that approach. Now, I should also say that once that decision was made, I didn't want to be filming interviews with myself or, you know, telling my own story. So I thought, maybe I bring in another director. So there's a fellow named Don Argett, a very good documentary director. And he and I were both in a film festival together in Kiev, Ukraine, of all places. And we hit it off. And uh, I told him what I was doing and asked him if he was a Vonnegut fan, and he was. I said, well, why don't you work on the film about me and I'll continue to focus on the biography and we'll create this sort of hybrid. And that's basically what we did. So um, yeah, it's been a long road and with a lot of starts and stops, I mean, there are periods of maybe three or four years where I didn't really do much on the film other than play around with footage in my editing room and that kind of thing. But. yeah, the, the, the thing I, I say to put it in perspective is when I first approached him, I was 20. I guess I was 23 by the time we met. And he was just about to turn 60. He, was, he had just had a sort of an early 60th birthday party. And I would refer to him as the old man affectionately. Like, oh, I'm going to have lunch with the old man when I'm in New York. And uh, I just finished the film and I just turned 62. <laughs> so I am now the old man. And uh, it's all come full circle and we're all unstuck in time.
0: Yeah, the thing that I think we need to talk about now is Kurt Vonnegut and the kind of writer that he was, and was what is it about his work that resonated with you? I know what resonated with me, and it was it was something I was profound, maybe too strong of a word, but it certainly it certainly struck a chord with me on an emotional level, on an intellectual level and also on a comedic level, a cosmically
1: comedic level. What struck you about him and his work? Well, you just encapsulated it perfectly. I mean, those are all my own feelings. I, I, you know, being a fan of comedy as you were, you know, that all, if something could really appeal to my funny bone, then, you know, that was it. That was, you know, m- most of the uh, most of the criteria right there. But, but Vonnegut, had this way of conveying very um, serious thoughts on very serious topics, whether it was the way we're, you know, killing off the planet, or the way we're killing off each other, or the way we behave in social situations, or the divide between the rich and the poor in this country, political issues, social issues, relationship issues, very serious heady stuff I think Hetty now, even as an adult, not just for high school or college students, very insightful, very important stuff, um, but all filtered through this sort of Midwestern sort of homespun sensibility and a Midwestern sense of humor. So it was that merging of the serious issues, but being very, very funny. I mean, it was that cliche of crying one moment and laughing the next. That's exactly what it was. And I just... As I say in the film, my first book was Breakfast of Champions given to me by a high school teacher, Valerie Stevenson, who actually appears in the film. We've remained remained in touch all these years. I didn't have to track her down. You know, once I read Breakfast of Champions, I said, that's it. I I found my author. This is my author and had to go out and and, uh, read everything of his I could. By the way, this was the day before you could Google stuff and, you know, long before all that. This is we're talking now the late 70s. I used to go to the public library and pull out these big volumes, the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. You could pull them out for any given year, look up a subject like Kurt Vonnegut. I did this with the March Brothers, any number of subjects. And it would give you all the newspaper and magazine articles that appeared that year on the subject. And at my library in my hometown in Fullerton, they had a pretty good um, microfilm collection so I could you know, put a microfilm on the machine and read some obscure article about Kurt Vonnegut written in 1961 or whatever. That's how obsessed I was. So the fact that he and I became not just friends, but very close friends, very intimate friends, was an honor and uh, still a bit of a, um, a mystery as to how that happened. It seemed a bit unreal at the time.
0: We're talking with um, Robert Whitey. He is the director, co-director, along with Don Argot of the documentary film Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time. It will be playing at the Doc NYC Film Festival as well as it will be opening in theaters on November 19th, coming right up. And also um, it'll be on VOD. So be looking for it there, assume the usual suspects in terms of where you can see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, he honed his skill, which I didn't know about. Thank you, in uh, in the film uh, we find out He honed his skill as a writer of stories for magazines. He was struggling up to that point and he found a niche. How much of an impact did that part of his writing career have on him as a writer?
1: Oh, it was uh, everything. It led to everything else. You know, it's fascinating to me. Kurt had said this to me a few different times, is that his desire to become a writer had nothing to do with feeling that he had something important to communicate or something that he had to say. It was always about just making a living, at least when he started. And, you know, he didn't study literature. He read all the great books, all the classics when he was a kid, because they were in the house, they were on the shelf. Um, But uh, he didn't have any strong feelings about being a writer. But after after the war, after the Second World War, he came home. You know, he had to get a real job. He became a publicist for General Electric. And he just started to fool around with short story writing. Because back then, if you could write short stories and sell them, you can make a good living because Saturday Evening Post, Colliers, any number of magazines would pay for short stories. So he tried his hand on it, thinking maybe I can make some extra money this way. And he started doing it. And unlike a lot of artistic temperaments now, who don't want to be interfered with, who don't want any notes, he would welcome if an editor wrote him and said we think you're on to something with the story but we think that ending needs tweaking or maybe you could lose this character he just said tell me tell me what to do i'll do whatever you want me to do because you want and then finally he sold his first short story to collier's um report on the barnhouse effect and i think it was a 750 fifty dollar payday and he realized if i sell even four of these stories in a year i'll make as much money as i make for my whole salary writing you know not bad Uh, public relations uh releases for GE so he started to sell them and sell them and then finally left GE and became a full-time writer but everything he would later know about writing maybe not everything but but at the foundation of what he would later use as a novelist all came from the short stories and from uh Journalism. From his high, he had a daily high school newspaper that he wrote for at Shortbridge High School in Indianapolis, and he wrote for the Cornell Sun when he was there. So, a lot of his instincts are journalistic as well. As Vonnegut knows, as Vonnegut readers know, he tells you all the important stuff right up front. Right. Right up front, what's going to happen, and then the joy is in sort of finding your way there through the narrative of the story. And that was that's just a journalistic trick, is you put the important stuff in the opening paragraph.
0: It's, a, it's a, don't bury the lead, right? Yeah. You, right. Yeah. Um, There is something that you just said that really kind of resonates with me uh, in terms of his personality, the way that he projects his persona that is at odds with what I read. You're saying, I mean, and he says it in the film, I need to make money. I want to make money. That's why I write. And in in the context of his experience at Dresden during World War II as a prisoner of war, what he says is, ah, didn't matter. Uh, Dogs that I know have had more of an impact than Dresden did. No, he and I see this throughout the film in your interactions with him. He says things that I essentially want to say, who am I supposed to believe you or my lying eyes? And because my eyes are telling me something very different in what he wrote and and his passion, even though much of it is uh, sort of sardonically funny, there's a real humanity and there's a real uh, there's a real emotion to, to his writing. Is that a fair way to put it?
1: Yes, I, I think so. And uh, now this notion that writing was a way to earn money and not so much uh, a, a need to communicate anything may apply more to his early days. Now, once he okay. was really accepted as a writer, maybe he did feel, hey, maybe I've got something to, to share with the world. Now, as far as uh, the influence of Dresden on all that, um, you know, he had witnessed something quite spectacular not in a good way, in a... In a, in a uh,
0: well, well, may I inter- interject? It was considered sure. by many to be a war crime what happened at Dresden. There was, was a real, what would he... Right. Firebombing,
1: but he, right? Sure, I mean, but he experienced it. He didn't even think in terms of good guys or bad guys. Right, right. Because let's remember the people who 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 firebombed the city and killed, you know, s- scores of people, uh, estimates up to, you know, 130,000 um, were the allies, were the good guys, that, that yeah. was us, that was the, you know, really the, the Brits with American help. And so he was he was attacked by his own people. Yeah. So that confuses everything, you know, who, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? So he wasn't even thinking in those terms. He was thinking of an event that, a catastrophic event that he witnessed that seemed to be a major event in the war. And when he came back from the war, expecting to go through old newspapers and magazines and read all about it. He found nothing about it, no mention of it. Nobody was writing about Dresden. And he thought, well, wait, uh, I saw this happen. Now remember, he already had his roots in journalism from his high school and college newspapers. So part of him thought, all right, no one else is writing about this, I will. But he kept trying to find a way to integrate this event uh, into his work in short stories. He sort of touches on it a little bit. Um, His books, either metaphorically like Cat's Cradle, which deals with a catastrophic event, uh, sort of deals with it, you know, going in through the side door. Uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, touches on Dresden a little bit in this sort of fictional fantasy way. It wasn't until Slaughterhouse-Five that he finally figured out how to crack the code and how to tell the story of what happened to him. But it's not a typical sort of journalistic recounting of events, there's time travel in it. Uh, you know, he, he goes, his character Billy Program goes off to this planet Tralfamador. So he's telling the story about what happens. And this goes back to what I said about being funny and crazy and wild and still being serious. He's dealing with the horrors of war, but he's entertaining as hell. And um, so yeah, Dresden, Dresden remained some sort of influence in all of his work. Uh, And then Slaughterhouse-Five was finally um, the catharsis. I think that's, he finally was able to purge it from his Well, in
0: the film, we see how many iterations it went through for it to become, obviously, this was something that was very critically important to his writing and to him as a person. And this, there's so much in the film, you get into the family background. Uh, the tragedy of his family, his mom, his sister, the impact they had on his life. There's so much here. It is just a fantastic documentary film. And your journey, as we see, is kind of our, I'll say, our guide into the life and times of Kurt Vonnegut. And to see that friendship develop and to see the the true affection and respect that you both had for each other and it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful experience to see Kurt Vonnegut unstuck in time. And you really have covered the spectrum of comedic um, geniuses, really people. And you, you, you've, you've worked with Larry David, who I consider to be a comedic genius. You, you were the director on the first four seasons of Curb. Five. And five, first five, pardon me, first five I, seasons.
1: I, I still go back and direct. Yeah. I use it to direct most of the episodes. I still go back and direct occasionally
0: incredible body of work thank you so much for your time here today
1: thank you for your time i appreciate it
0: you've been listening to film school radio the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films you can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com i'm your host mike caspar